for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and I will read through uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and then we'll get after it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Nowadays, um, there are no shortage of reality TV shows. Uh, One of my favorites is the survival shows, right? Uh, I love the outdoors, and I think it would be kind of exciting and challenging, you know, to be put in a situation where you've got to survive. You've got to tough it out, live off the land, and all that good stuff. Now, I do admit, when I think of this, what I have in mind is probably not reality. Um, When I go camping for one night, I have a truck bed of gear and a trailer in tow connected to another trailer, and you think I would moving in. Um, But I love these survival shows nonetheless because you really get to see this uh, kind of gut check of man versus the wild, man versus the world. One of the things that you typically see in these shows is the participants often get to bring a chosen item or two to help them survive, right? They get some shows they get to bring one item, so some shows it's two or three or a backpack, it's whatever they can fit on their person. Um, But there's one show in particular where it's two people and they both get to choose one item um, each. And so uh, nearly every time when uh, one of them has something to cut with, they have a knife or a hatchet or an axe or just something to cut with, uh, and then the other has something to make fire, to make sparks. And these are pretty good choices. I'm, I'm, those are good choices. But I've learned, um, especially with the last few days, as I've been reminding this sitting outdoors, if I were to be dropped in the middle of the woods with a partner, and we only got to bring one item each, we only had a couple of items between the two of us, I've decided what my two items would be. Now think about this. What would you bring? My camper, my car. Those don't count. You don't get to. What would you bring? For me, first, fire. I'm in on fire. Give me the warmth, smoke signals, cook things, boil water. I'm in on fire. But second, for me, I may be off here. It would be a humongous vat of bug repellent. Bug spray. Like a family size, you bought it at Sam's container of DEET. 
Because I can make a spear to stab. I can use a rock to cut. I can fast for 21 days if I need to. I've rarely seen people be sent home packing on these shows because they're hungry. But I have watched grown military men trained in hand combat. They've fought in wars, finished triathlons, slept on Mount Everest, paired up with a girl, delivered quintuplets fighting off sharks in the ocean. And they get out in the jungle only to be put on their knees, crying in submission, begging to go home because of mosquitoes. They'll have a night cam on them when they're sleeping, if you've seen this, and all you hear is slap and ouch, and I hate this. My life is miserable. Why, God, you can't do this. And there's just grown me. I just want to see my kids. I mean, because of mosquitoes. And they try, you know, they're like, when we get the fire, we'll smoke them out. And they smoke, and they cover themselves in mud and leaves and all this stuff. But time after time, the bugs bring them to their knees just crying for mercy. The bugs win, and they get sent home packing. And they'll show an interview of the person afterwards, and the person will just, that place was vicious. If you aren't ready, it will chew you up and spit you out. It was not a friendly place. And so you get the image. Now, if you'll allow me to make the transition in a similar way for Christians, we live in a world that's not friendly. That's not our home. And it has very vicious predators, even in small forms very often. And it is very hostile to what we believe and to even our being here. It's very hostile to the idea that we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe that Jesus is the only way, not one of many. It's hostile to the idea that we believe that sin is real and hell is real. And those who don't place their faith in Christ and repent of their sin will be damned to hell for eternity. We believe that. It's hostile to the idea that we believe that the word of God is eternal and it is ultimate, not relative truth. So friends, the world we live in, it is fallen in sin and if you are no longer dead in your sins but alive in Christ and believing Christ and clinging to the alive God this world is no longer your friend this is why James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God why because the world is broken in sin and so if you're in Christ this world is not your home scripture says this and it's oftentimes, most often, not friendly to your ways. And it would love nothing more than to send you home packing. To bring you your, to your knees in submission. And this issue, this isn't new for us. Uh, it's as old as sin. This is where Peter's readers found themselves. In his letter in, in verse 211, he calls them exiles and sojourners. They are, they're living in a land that's not their home. And they were experiencing growing persecution and trials and discomfort and displacement. And they're being slandered and maligned for bearing the name of Christ, for living Christian ways. And it was seemingly, um, as we know from his letter, it was wearing them down. They were on the verge of falling out and giving up. So, Peter wrote his letter. The reason why he wrote this letter at all is to help them stay the course, to keep the faith, to stand firm, come what may. He says this in 512. Uh, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, all I've written, 
this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. That's why I wrote this letter, to help them stand firm in the grace of God until the end. And so, church, for us today, like the church that he was writing to, we live in a world that is hostile to what we believe in. If we don't understand our surroundings and understand what God has given us to help us survive, and not just to survive, but to endure and to thrive, we too will fall out. We will give up and we will give in. And so, in our text, uh, Peter is helping um, the believers understand their world, understand their suffering, understand the sovereignty of God over that suffering, but he's also uh, helping them, uh, offering them an essential means, a tool, if you will, that God has given believers to help them stand firm and stay the course until the end. So let me ask you, Christian, what would you choose What do you choose? Living in a world not your own, it's hostile to much of what we believe. What would you choose if you could only choose one or two things to help you keep the faith, to stay in and stand firm until the end, to help you endure? What would you choose? Peter's giving us one of the things that we should choose. He's giving us One of the tools, knowing all that they're going through, the trials and suffering and hardships they're enduring. Peter says, here's what you need to make it to the end. Love one another. Love one another. You want to make it to that day when it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1 says, where it's glory and honor, when the joy of Christ is yours at his return. You want to finish the race, come what may? Peter says, love one another. Let me ask you this, what place of importance or priority, how essential do you see the people sitting around you in this room for you to make it to the end? Too often, I'm afraid we treat Christian fellowship, and what we have together, our love for one another in Christ, too often I'm afraid we treat it as a luxury, as kind of a, a bonus, um, something, there's seasons I need that more, and there's seasons I don't really need that. Some need it more than others. You need it more than me. I don't need it so much, or I need it right now. But friends, God's word is not fickle about this. God's word says, I will keep you. If you'll make it, though, you'll make it through your love for one another in Christ. And that's what I hope you will leave believing today, that Christian love isn't a luxury. It's an essential means of Christian endurance. Peter goes so far as to say that this is why you were even set apart. Look at verse 122. He wrote, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Why? For a sincere brotherly love. He's saying you've been born again to love one another. He's been, you've been born again so that you will love one another. And this is consistent with the whole of scriptural. Scripture, the Bible says that God is love, right? You were created to enjoy and show that love, to live in that love. And when you live in it, when you show it, it shows God. It glorifies God. Though sin broke that in Christ, you're redeemed to love like God your Father, who is love. And so, 
That love is never, contrary to what we kind of hear in our day and time, your love for God. That love is never something just between you and God. No, your love for God. Hear me on this. Your love for God is evidenced in your love for others. That you are in the love of God at all, that it even exists in your life, it's evidence. The way you see it is by how you love others. John said in John, 1 John 4 that if anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, what does John say he is? John says he's a liar. I mean, he doesn't pull any punches. He's a liar. His love is a joke. It's not real. He doesn't love God or abide in love God, God's love. So to love God is to love your brothers. Jesus said it this way, Love one another because by this, by this defining mark, people will know that you're my disciples. By that mark. Paul wrote the Galatians some very strong words. He said that the whole law, the whole shooting match, all the do's and don'ts of Scripture is fulfilled. It's summed up in one word. Love. Love one another. The writer of Hebrews in three ten, chapter 3 and 10, he wrote that our daily mutual exhortation in Christ, daily stirring one another up to love and good works, this is how we guard our lives from sin, and this is how we hold our faith firmly until the end. Scripture is permeated with this command to love one another. Christian, God has given you that's what Tyler said to mom. He's given us such great promises. He said that he would never leave you or forsake you, and nothing can separate you from his love. He said that what he started in you, no matter what comes against you, no matter what laws are passed, no matter who you lose in your life, no matter what you lose in your life, come what may, Scripture says, what he started in you, he will finish. That's a great promise. But he's given means to uphold those promises. He sent you into the world with tools to help you survive and thrive and live in the enjoyment of those promises and be the most joyful people in the world. And one of those tools, one of the essential non-negotiables is Christian love, your love for one another. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time on today is looking at Peter's words to help us understand what that love, Christian love, what it really does look like. And we need this help in our day and time, do we not? Right now, we got a ton of definitions thrown around of this is what it means to love a person. No, this is what it means to love a person. We get a lot of people, everything from Fox News to the neighbor down the street, telling us this is what it means to love someone. But hear me, God is love. And Scripture says we love because he first loved us. And if we would have a right understanding of love and how to love, we will find it only by looking to the God who is love and to his word. In our text, we see at least four characteristics of Christian love that will help us endure the, to the end. So four characteristics to help us understand what that love should look like that we should have for one another to help us stand firm in the grace of God. First, Christian love is earnest. Peter says to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Another way to translate this word earnest is intense, full-on, 
all out, no penny pinching, no keeping track of the score, no ledgers, and no holding back. You know, um, if I'm honest, there have been times in my life where I have asked the question, you may have asked this too, how far should I go in loving someone? How committed do I have to be? I admit sometimes when I'm asking that, I'm kind of looking for the bare minimum that'll make God okay with me. How much do I endure or bear for another? How much do I let myself get tangled up in the mess of someone else's stuff? How much of a responsibility do I really have for you? That's what I'm asking. Not just as your pastor, but because you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, for me, I kind of innately know this responsibility. It's a little more natural, if you will, for my wife and kids. You don't really have to tell me. That's built into my heart, my mind. Uh, To me, anything I've got all out, there's no holding back. Take bullets, give everything, lay down your life. There's no limit. But what about you? What about you? Is there a limit to the amount of love I give to you? Is there a limit to how far I can or even should go? And honestly, I, ha- I have struggled with this question a little bit. In my mind, if I'm honest, I say, yeah, there's a limit. I look at you and I think, yep, there's a limit. Um, sorry, but I do. Um, and my limit may be different than yours, and it probably varies per person. And your limit is probably a little bit different than mine. And when you start encroaching upon my personal space here and my stuff and, and my time, the limit's very quickly approaching, Right? But when I look to God, when I look to Christ and I ask this question, how far should I go? The only answer I get back time and again, as I have loved you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, that's how far I want you to go. Jesus said that Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his, who? His sons, his daughters, his husbands. No, for his friends. For his friends. And then that's exactly what he did. He showed me the greatest love possible. He showed you the greatest love possible. He set no limits. He stopped at nothing. He laid down his life for me, a sinner who didn't deserve it, even scorned it. I didn't even want him to. His love was still given to me without merit and without limit. And then he tells all of our different limits. He tells all of our different standards and all our different abilities to give love. He looks at every single one who would come after him, who would follow him, and says, do away with your limits. You want to know how far I want every one of you to go? This is how far the way I have loved you, as I have loved you. That's how I want you to love one another. I want you to leave your place of comfort and wade into the mess of other people's lives and lay down your life for people who don't deserve it, probably won't appreciate it, may even kick you for giving it. And I want you to go all in for them. You see what, here's what Peter's doing. He's grounding our love for one another back to the love that God showed us in saving us. 
He's pointing back to what God did for us in Christ. Peter says, says, because you have been born again and your new life is imperishable because it can't fade or be lost or run dry because of that's what God's love did for you because you've been given everything in love and this is the only reason you have life. Peter says, love. Give everything. Because you've been given everything, give everything. He says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable Love one another earnestly, intensely, all out. Friends, this is what Christian love does. It goes all in. It kills. It throws the ledgers away. It puts no limits on it. That's how we should love one another. And by love one another that, loving one another that way, we will stand firm. That's the first characteristic of love that will keep us. Second, Christian love is centered upon the word of God. Look at what Peter writes. You have been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, is, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So here... What Peter's doing is he's quoting Isaiah 40, spoken hundreds of years before. Isaiah had originally spoken these words to Israel, to God's people, who were living under the oppressive rule in exile in Babylon. So they were exiles, right? They were being oppressed by the Babylonians. It was because of their own sin and rebellion. God had given them over to the Babylonians. And in Isaiah 40, God has sent the prophet back to his people to give them a renewed hope. He was reminding them of something. He was telling them, God has made you promises long ago, well before the Babylonians. And he's telling them their rule and their reign and their oppression that you feel right now, he's telling them it's not the final word. He's telling them, though she exists, Babylon, in all her glory right now, and she's on top of the world ruling, Isaiah says, listen, people. Listen to me, God's people. The Babylonians will fade like grass. It will fall to the wayside like petals on a flower. Your exile will not be forever. And so, think about this. How did Peter address his readers? As exiles. And so they too, like the people in Isaiah's time, were living in a land not their own, and they were experiencing these trials and persecutions and being slandered for their faith. But this time, what happened to Babylon? Its glory passed. It was done. It had already faded. This time, who was it? It was Rome. Rome was in her glory days, and Nero was about to shine in all his glory before he killed himself. What does Peter have to say to them? The same as Isaiah said, all flesh, man, his rule, his reign, his world, his decrees, his laws, all flesh, he says, is like grass. And it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But he says what Isaiah said, you know will not pass. You know what will not fail. What will be here 2,000 years from now, and that's about how far we're at right now, 
Peter says, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter's saying it's the never-fading, always eternal word of the living God. Friends, Peter was wise to speak these words here. They had already come true. What Isaiah prophesied, and they probably couldn't get their arm around, how is this going to fade? They're, they're a superpower. It had already come true. Great Babylon had already fallen. Her glory had already faded. And Peter was telling him, this glory of Rome you see right now, the slander of man and the glory and pomp and circumstance of Rome, all that that you see right now, this will pass. It will not last. This is the way of all the glory of man. The words of man will come and go. They will rise and fall. I mean, it's fresh on our mind. You saw the fireworks last night. That's the glory of man. It goes up and poof. 50 bucks later, it's gone. Right? I don't, friends, hear me on this. Our country, believe it or not, and I love my country, I love the freedoms we have here, she will fall. I don't know if it'll be a lot in my lifetime or five generations from now, um, but I do know this. When she falls, one thing will not fall. One thing will not fail. It's the eternal word of the Lord. It was true during the time of the Babylonians. It was true during the time of Rome, which is now long gone, fallen. And it is true for us. And so Peter is making a connection here. He says, this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word that you believed. It's the word you were born again in. It's the word you were given new life in. And now what Peter is saying in your love for one another, stay there. That's what Christian love does. It stays tethered to the eternal word of the Lord. This is how your love will endure to the end because your love, it's not based on how you feel. It's not based on the fickleness of man or the laws of the land or the opinions or fads of what's going around you. It's founded upon and anchored to the unchanging eternal word of the Lord. Friends, love apart from God's word is not love and it will not last. It will fade with the glory of man. It will come and go with the ebbs and flow of man's will. But Christian love it endures because it's grounded in the enduring word of God. It's where you found new life. And it's where together we enjoy new life, loving one another. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another in the truth of God's eternal word. Third, Christian love puts away sin. Paul writes, so put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he's saying you love one another earnestly, that's how, in the truth of God's word. And now he's saying putting away sin. So look at these sins he's listed just real quick. See if you can hear a common word in these. Malice is ill will towards others. Deceit is misrepresenting the truth to others. Envy is wanting what others have. Instead of trusting what God has given you, hypocrisy is misrepresenting the truth about yourself to others, and slander is misrepresenting the truth about others. So what do they all have in common? These sins destroy others. They destroy the relationships that we were redeemed to live in 
and enjoy to stand firm in Christ together. And really, though Peter lists out these sins, the truth is this is the reality of all sin. Hear me on this. All sin of any type destroys relationships. We see this from the beginning of Scripture. Eve ate the fruit, and what happened? She's mad at her husband. Right? Right from the get-go. What did Abel, Abel didn't have to do anything to Cain, right? What happened? Cain's own sin, his own issues made him kill his brother. Friends, Scripture, it, it's, we could go on and on and on. It's clear on this. There's no such thing as personal, private, it's just me, sin. Why? Because when you became a child of God, you became part of the family of God. In Christ, there are no only children, only child however you want to say that. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. You live in, Scripture says, calls you in the household of God. You are, as Paul wrote, listen to this, members of one another. He wrote the Corinthians that if one member suffers because we're members of one another, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Why? Because we're members. We're connected to one another. And so hear me, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you embrace it or not, whether you've been embracing it or not, Scripture says that when you were born again, you're no longer just you. In Christ, we are one people, one body, one faith, one baptism. We have one hope. We are no longer strangers and aliens because of our sin, but we are knit together by Christ, in Christ, and for Christ. We belong to one another because we belong to Christ. And so, as part of a people now, my sin is not just my sin. And neither is yours just yours. No matter the type, it's never just about me. It's never just about you. And so Peter, he, remember what he's doing. He's laboring for their love for one another to help them stand firm. And to this, he says, put sin away. Don't let it have any place among you. Kill it or it will kill you. Because sin destroys relationships. It tears at the very thing that God gave you to keep you to the end. And so, here's the thing. Christian love deals with sin. Christian love deals with sin. We don't shove it under the rug. We're not hush-hush about it. And we're not afraid of it because we believe Christ has already dealt with it. We're not afraid of sin because we truly believe Christ has paid for all sins, no matter how big or how small they are. But like Jesus... We deal with sin. This is, a, this is a, a touchy thing in our day and time. Not to condemn or judge, but so that we can put it away. Right? There's a lie being perpetrated in our day and time that says to love someone means you just leave them alone in their sin. It comes out like this. Don't judge me. Right? You've heard this. Don't judge me. But what it means is don't talk about my sin. Don't call my sin, sin. Friends, what are we doing? We're looking to Christ to learn about love right now. This is not love according to Jesus. The world wants to say that this is how Jesus loved, but it's a lie. Yes, he accepted, lovingly accepted sinners. He was a friend of prostitutes and adulterers and lepers and drunkards. He was a friend of sinners. And no, he didn't come to judge. But hear me. 
That's because the law had already been given. Judgment heart had already been made. The law shows us that we are dead in our sins. Judgment is done. Jesus didn't have to judge, and we don't have to judge. The righteous law of God judges. No, Jesus came to save people from the judgment, but he didn't, hear me, he didn't do it by pretending like sin didn't exist. He paid the price for sin, but that, even that, did not keep him from calling people to repent of their sin so he could receive what he came to give. Friends, love deals with sin. Love works to put sin away in oneself and in another for the good of the body and the glory of Christ. The love that Jesus gave the woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well in John 4? Remember the prostitute that was kneeled before him because they all wanted to stone her? What did his love tell them, hurt them to do? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Loves, believes the promise of God that says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive to forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church family, if we would, uh, if we would love one another well, we will do so by dealing with sin so that together we can put it away and receive Christ. Receive what he came to give us. Christian love that helps each other endure deals with sin so that we can put it away. Fourth, Christian love labors for spiritual growth. Paul writes, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When a child is born, happens around here every other day, when a child is born, within a matter of days, the newborn get, begins to what? Put on ounces, put on weight. I mean, you just watch it happen. Just, hey, they gained it to an ounce today, an ounce They just put on weight, and the eyes start to open up more, and hands start to move more, and new noises, and learn new motor skills. And newborns do what? They grow. There's a lot of things you could fill in the blank there, but one thing they do is they grow, right? And we expect this. If you have a child, and over time, as weeks and months pass, if they aren't growing, they're not gaining weight and getting longer or eventually learning to wave and one day talk and pull up and walk, what do you do? Take them to the doctor. Why? Something's broke. Something's wrong. Why? Because newborns grow. And what Peter's being very simple here in this, he's saying born-again Christians grow. They grow. If you've been born again, you grow and you long for the nourishment that will help you grow. You even cry out for it. Christian, let me, let me ask you this. Are you growing? Do you crave that which will help you to grow? Let me quantify that a little bit because sometimes we want to get touchy-feely with what growing is. Are you obeying God's word more today than you were a year ago? Are you giving more of your time, talents, and treasure to build his kingdom over your kingdom? Is it less of you and more of Christ? Do you thirst for the things that help you grow? Have you ever cared for a baby that was hungry 
and you didn't have anything to give them, what do they do? They, bingo. Somebody said it. They cry until you feed them. And if you give them a counterfeit, like when they're really hungry, you put a pacifier, try putting your pinky in their mouth or something, it's not good. It doesn't work. They let you know why they want nourishment. And this, and this is a good thing. It's a sign of a healthy, growing child when they want to eat, when they want to be nourished. And when they don't want to eat, what do you do? You call the doctor. Similarly, this is what a healthy, growing, reborn child of God looks like. They grow, and they want to grow. And Christian love wants others to grow. Love from God labors for and wants spiritual growth in your brothers and sisters. Love labors for growth. And so how do we do that? There's a a lot of answers that you could give here, but let's just stick to what Peter's saying. How do I labor for your growth and you labor for my growth? Peter alludes to Psalm 34 where the psalmist says to taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember, that's what Peter said, if indeed you haven't tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is saying this. If you're in Christ, you've tasted how good God is. Right? You've sat down and enjoyed that meal. You heard the gospel. You believed. You were washed of your sin. You were given the righteousness of Christ. You were given new life. You, you felt what it felt like to remove the condemnation and the guilt, not of your own doing, but by the sweet grace and mercy of God. You know how good God is, Peter is saying. This is where you found new life, and there's nothing that's ever satisfied you like this. And, and, and here's what Peter's saying. There's nothing that ever will, so don't look anywhere else. Stop looking elsewhere. Don't try to grow any other way. God alone gives the growth. God is my soul's and your soul's nourishment. And so if we are to love one another well, if we are to love one another in such a way as to help each other grow and stand firm, what Peter is saying we do is help each other again and again and again and again go back to the goodness of the Lord help each other keep going back to that well of God's goodness and drink again and again. Help each other not to look anywhere else because we are prone to wander. We sing that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's who all of us are. We're prone to think, no, this job will make me happier. This person will make me happier. That over there will make me happier. We're so prone to look elsewhere Peter said, we help each other not look anywhere else but to Christ to satisfy us. Because Jesus isn't just the threshold of the Christian life. He is the Christian life. He is the good news yesterday. He's the good news today. And guess what? He'll be the good news tomorrow. His goodness that gave us new life, Peter is saying his goodness will keep on giving us new life. It will keep reviving your soul. It will keep refreshing you day after day after day. And so for me to grow, that's what I need, the goodness of the Lord. For you to grow, that's what you need, the goodness of the Lord. So for, to love you, I'm going to keep grabbing your hand and taking you back to that well, to drink of his goodness. And so in love, 
when the test results come back bad, we take each other by the hand and say, come, he's good. He's good. God is good. He has been faithful and he will take care of us. When the job doesn't work out and we don't know where the next light bill is getting paid, we go to our brother and we say, he's good. He has provided. He will provide. He will take care of us. God is faithful. When the relationship falls apart, we grab each other by the hand and we say, we can't do this, but God can. Let's go up to the house of the Lord together. He has been so good to us in Christ. If he gave us Christ, he'll withhold nothing from us. Let's go back to him. We tell each other over and over and over, God's love never fails. Christian love takes your brother or sister by the hand and just over and over and again and again goes to the goodness of the Lord together. And so in love, we labor to help each other believe this. And by it, come what may in this world, we grow up. We mature. By this, no matter what comes, we endure and we stand firm. And so, as the band comes back, let me, let me ask you. How are you doing? This is your interview here. Interview yourself for a second. The camera's on you. You've been surviving. We live in a hostile world because of sin. Are you growing or are you fading? Are you falling to your knees in submission to the world or in submission to Christ? Are you in the body of Christ? Are you part of the body, loving them, serving the body, and letting them love you back? Letting them care for you? You know, there's a movie about a young man out there named Chris McCandless. Um, He wanted to make it on his own in the wild. You may have heard it's called Into the Wild. You may have read the book or watched the movie. Um, And in this movie, a great movie, I love the movie, but spoiler alert, he died. Um, So if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Um, But he's living alone in Alaska out in the wild, and he, he didn't get eaten by a bear. He just, he ate the wrong seeds. Just very subtle mistake. He ate the wrong seeds. They look like the right ones. They look like they would help him get some energy. They were counterfeits. They were poisonous, and he ended up dying. And so I realize I'm speculating a bit here, but what if he had another set of eyes on those seeds? What if he had someone beside him and say, ah, those look just like him, but that's not the right ones? Even more, what if he had a couple people? What if he had six or seven, maybe ten around him to come alongside to help him gather lots of food? to help him build shelter and fight off predators. And if he gets sick because a bad choice was made, we know that's going to happen. But if he gets sick, there's people around him to help nurture him back to health. That's one of the reasons they believe he died. He didn't have anybody just to help him when he got sick. And so, friends, this is, we, we, you don't have to be convinced of this. We live in a world that's full of lies and deception and pain and suffering and trials. And I'm th- so thankful that in Christ, it's all, de- all been defeated. Christ said in this world, you're going to have trials, tribulations, problems. It's coming. It's going to be in this world. But he says, take heart. I've overcome it all. 
I'm so thankful that nothing I can come up against tomorrow, there's no news that I can think of that's going to beat that. There's no news that's going to overcome what Christ overcame. God alone is our salvation is our, and our hope. Christ is everything we need. But he's giving you and I a means, a tool, if you will, to receive that, to enjoy that, to live in that, to claim that even, if I can use that word. He's given us one another. So the question is, will you believe that? The invitation is not to me. I'm no savior. The invitation is to Christ. The invitation is not to believe in the person beside you. The invitation is to believe in Christ and believe what he said, that he will work in your life through the people beside you. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help to believe today. We need your help to believe that you are everything we need and that you have given us one another to receive that, to enjoy that, to to revel in that. If you're not a Christian today, you, you hear this message and you can say, I've not tasted that the Lord is good. Today, I want to invite you to the banquet of God's love in Christ to come and taste and enjoy the goodness of the Lord. Invitation is to come today and enjoy it. Know what it's like to have a people who are, yes, sinners, but will come around you even in their sin and love you and care for you, come what may. If you are a Christian today, are you trusting what God's given you? Have you waded into the mess of other people's lives knowing that God's not just going to work in them, but he's going to work in you? Are you serving the body? Serve one another in love, Scripture says. God, we need your help to believe. We need your help to be faithful. We need your help to obey. We need your help to take a step towards you today. So all of you in this room, whatever that step looks like today, I pray that you would take it by faith. God is sufficient for these things. Come, believe, and taste that he is good. Let's stand as we continue to worship.